This talk by John Sutherland called Introduction to Working with Koans is the second of four talks given at the Desert Rain Retreat given on February 29, 2012 in Tucson, Arizona. Good evening, Bodhisattvas. Good evening. Welcome to Campfire Dharma Talks. <laughs> um, tonight I would like to, to say a few words about koans. There seem to be an infinite number of words to say about koans, so this is just a, a, a moment's um, dip into the stream. But maybe some ways of looking at fundamentally how to have a, how to line up to a con, how to have a relationship with it, and a little bit about how to work with it. And then I'd like to, um, to take a look at just a few cons and see if we have anything to say about them as a group. Um, please make yourselves comfortable. Those of you in the middle, is it okay to sort of be facing sideways like that? Any problem? Okay. <laughs> you can you know, move around a little bit if that would, especially at the end there, Ellie. Yeah. Ellie, you look fine. <laughs> okay. Um, even though not all of us are doing koans or even interested in koans, they really are the foundation of our school. And there's so much of our practice and our philosophy and how we really understand what the Dharma is that comes out of this 1,300-year-long mad experiment um, in, the, in the getting of, of consciousness, which are the koans. So um, even if it doesn't seem to relate so directly to what you're doing in your practice, actually it does because it informs so much of everything we do. Um, and I wanted to start with a, a quote from... D.T. Suzuki, who was a, a great Japanese Rinzai scholar, actually. Um, but he also had a quite significant opening as a young man. And so while he was brilliant as an academic and taught at Columbia and did all that, um, he, he it had it as its foundation this profound experience of the the true nature of things that he had had and he spent a lot of his time and energy trying to bring koans across trying to make them explicable to a western audience and sometimes he had a tremendously strange and lyrical turn of of um, thought about koans and this is one such moment he starts out by by saying something that's that's true Ko, the ko of koan, literally means public, and on, the on of koan, is a document. So a koan, a public document, he says, this has nothing to do with Zen. The Zen document is the one each of us brings along to this world at our birth and tries to decipher before we pass away. That's kind of incredibly great, is it not? The Zen document is the one each of us brings along to this world at our birth and tries to decipher before we pass away. There is, however, no secrecy to this, as it is all open or public to us, to every one of us. 
So he was pushing against that idea that koans are this paradox or this riddle or there's something um, secret or hidden or a special handshake that you have to know in order to decipher them. And he was he said that um, there's no secrecy. It's all open to every one of us. If there is any hidden meaning in it at all, it is on our side and not in the document. It is something in us that is hidden, that the koan will help us reveal, not something that is hidden in the koan. When the koan is brought out of the unconscious to the field of consciousness, it is said to have been understood by us. And then a contemporary of Suzuki's who was a a great um, koan teacher whose work we use in our own koan practice said it sort of succinctly koan style. He said, etymologically, this is, I'm sorry, this is Shibayama Zenkei who wrote a great book on the gateless gate, the Mumankan. Etymologically, the term koan means the place where the truth is. The koan is the place where the truth is. So again, nothing secret or hidden or um, tricky there. The koan is where the truth is, and in coming into relationship with it, it will reveal to us a truth hitherto not conscious yet. It will help us make it conscious and make it part of our lives. So um, I think it's really normal, especially at the beginning of koan study, to try to figure a koan out to hold it in your hands and shake it until it um, divulges its secret. So that's the opposite move, right? That's the assumption that there's something rattling around inside the koan, and if we just shake it hard enough, it'll fall out, <laughs> and, and we'll be able to use it. So um, this, is, this is you trying to solve it, you trying to solve the koan, um, as though it were some intimidating public document you received, right? Here's your new koan, and it's like getting a registered letter from Homeland Security. <laughs> I don't know what to do about this. And if, and if, not, if not mildly threatening or pulse-quickening in that way, um, maybe just puzzling or opaque. And I think of um, a wonderful experience with Serafina, John Terran's daughter, who, when she was, I don't know, about 13 or 14, developed a love for Joan Baez. So I, I immediately went to my cupboard and pulled out all my old LPs. And I mean LPs, I mean records. And I said, look, I have all these old Joan Baez records. And she took the record in her hand, and she looked at it like this, and she turned it around and upside down, and she said, how do you open this? <laughs> so, so sometimes a koan can be like that. <laughs> How do you open this? <laughs> I felt really old that day. <laughs> um, okay, so so if it's not that, if it's not a Rubik's cube that we're gonna we're gonna shake the the truth out of, what is the nature of this public document that is a koan? I want to offer um, an alternative, and um, I think this one's particularly for for this. It will become particularly for Judith in honor of our our, um, Bodhisattva veterinarian. So this is a this is a verse by Shuedov on one of the the koans in the Blue Cliff Record, Blue Cliff Record twenty four, and it's um it's a koan in which. Uh, a nun named Iron Grinder Liu comes to the hut of Guishan, um, one of the 
great ancient koan teachers, and they have a conversation. And, and Shuido comments on the moment when she arrives at his hut. She rides an iron horse into the fortress and is met with a proclamation that all the land is at peace. So she comes in kind of blazing in her iron grinder of glory and is met with a proclamation that all the land is at peace. That's Guishan's response to her. All is well. You're welcome. Come on in. Flop down on the floor with me. And then uh, Yuan Wu, in commenting on this poem, says, and this, this is the part that's for you, Judith, a dog carries the amnesty in his mouth. Now, um, anybody who's kept company with a dog, mm-hmm. I think, ha- has an immediate feel for that, the dog bringing the amnesty in its mouth. Um, at the end of a long and bruising day, you, you come to the door, and here is this being who is so happy to see you, <laughs> and everything is well, and all is forgiven, and life is good. And I think that's the, the, um, the amnesty that the dog offers. And, and so the koans, Yuanwu, um, is deliberately invoking this very Hamish image, this very homey image of um, the uh, rest at the end of the day and everything being good, everything forgiven, as saying, this is what a koan is, not an, a, a registered letter from Homeland Security, but a dog with, with amnesty in its mouth. Um, if we can receive the koan that way, in that spirit of the dog wagging its tail at the door, um, we're likely to find that actually more than us solving the koan, the koan is in some way solving us. And um, in this, this I'm, I offer my gratitude to, um, to Jung, who said, we don't cure our symptoms, our symptoms cure us. And I think in the same way, we don't solve the koans. The koans solve us. So they're like the dog at the door, reminding us of something more expansive in our, already in ourselves. When we come home tired and defeated and longing for a bath and bed um, at the end of a hard day, the dog isn't giving us something we don't have. The dog is reminding us of something that is already true about us, reminding us of something that is more expansive than that feeling of, of exhaustion and constriction we're feeling at the moment. And, um, and that's what, that, what koans do. So that it turns out um, that, that what is difficult in the meeting with the koan really often isn't what the koan is bringing to the meeting, it's what we're bringing. It's like coming home at the end of the day and bringing the residue of the day with you. Um, we, those of us who've worked with dreams together, we've talked about how dreams in the early part of the night in the Mahayana tradition are thought of as carrying a lot of karmic residue with them. They're the dreams where, we're, where we're tr- when we remember them, we're trying to work out what it says about us and our lives and what kind of meaning it has for us in a day-to-day basis. So that's, that's, they're called um, karmic residue dreams. And in a way, it's, it's a sort of larger version of that karmic residue that we bring to the koan 
in the same way that we can bring it to our dreams. We bring the karmic residue of our whole lives, of our, our tendencies and our biases and our opinions and our habitual ways of doing things. We bring that to the koan, and that's what makes things tricky in the relationship. That's what makes things sometimes obscure. Um, so what what is, what is hidden to follow Suzuki and as yet unknown is in us, not in the koan. And what the koan will do is um, help us reveal that to ourselves. And the really important thing about this is that the resolution of the koan already exists inside of us. It's already there. It's that expansive state we forget from moment to moment. Um, it's just being made manifest by the koan. That's why there can be no um, recipe for enlightenment, no true recipe for enlightenment, because if you think about it, um, if enlightenment were a matter of adding something, there might be a recipe, like we can make a chocolate cake by following the recipe, and we know it's pretty clear how you do that. But in the matter of awakening, it is never about adding something. It is about revealing something that's already true in each of us. And the work of that revelation has to do with the um, transforming of the obscurations, the things that get in the way. And that's going to be particular to each of us. No two of us, we might share obscurations, and I might be able to name a few and everybody would laugh because they recognize them, but no two of us have exactly the same um, thickets of brambles between us and awakening. For each of us, it's our own particular hell. <laughs> and for each of us, it's a matter of transforming those thickets of brambles into gardens. And that will be different for each of us. That's why there's no recipe, because it's not about adding something. It's about working with what each of us has to reveal what is underneath that, that we already have, that we don't need to add anything to at all. Just clear the ground a little bit so that it becomes clear. Um, okay, so... In, in this process, um, sometimes people can think of the koan as a public document in the sense of something that's not personal and can even feel foreign. They feel weird and strange and ununderstandable, and they speak in an idiom um, of a thousand years ago from another, <laughs> another continent and, um, and from another kind of life, a monastic kind of life. So that people kind of bridle at the foreignness of the koans and they, and they put them aside because of that. Um, and there's, there's something in there that's true. There are a lot of things that are important in our lives um, that don't get addressed so directly in the koans. The whole realm of um, family life, the whole realm of, of, a, kind of, of um, a kind of intimate love that happens in family life is glancingly looked at, but, but not certainly not explored in any kind of depth. So our curriculum is evolving in response to that. We have added new koans that seem to bring those things in. So that's true. 
But what's also true, I think, is that the very weirdness of the koans is important. We're becoming so habituated to receiving information hand-tailored for us on the Internet and through social media, right? You don't have to get anything you don't want, except for spam, but that's a different <laughs> subject. You know, but you can, you can subscribe to, I don't know, does Rush Limbaugh have a newsletter? You can subscribe to Rush Limbaugh's newsletter. You can subscribe to Huffington Post, and that's all you see all day of what the news is, you know? And um, and so the very weirdness of the koans can be can push against the grain in a really helpful way. They're not um, reinforcing our habitual ways of the heart mind. They're um, they're sort of tilting them, pushing them over a little bit, asking for something different. They come from a territory outside that which we already know or suspect about life. And they invite us to enlarge our understanding of what life is by stepping into that territory with them. And they're interested in how we respond to the new and unexpected. Not how we, you know, nod our heads and say, yep, I always knew that about the world. (laughs) They're interested in what we do when something really um, comes in from left field and um, and and pulls the rug out from under us for a moment so that we're in free fall. Um, and I wanted to, to just give another example of this question of the, the foreignness of koans, but this is in the other direction. This is from one of our Japanese ancestors, Nakagawa Soen, who was um, a real genius, artistic genius in the 20th century and, and our direct relative. And he was looking at the Cohen's moving from Japanese into English, from Japan to America. And listen to the view that he had, which is so different from that kind of, oh, this is too weird, I don't want to deal with this. He was writing a letter to Senzaki Nyogen, um, his colleague who lived a, a very long time in Los Angeles. And this is from 1938. He wrote this while he was on the Pacific Ocean, crossing from one place to another. I've been studying your Dharma talks on the Gateless Gate, which is one of the great koan collections, one after another. I feel emancipated just seeing the teaching conveyed in Roman letters rather than Japanese ideograms. Zen, which is fundamentally about the emancipation of all beings, is unfortunately sealed in some square box called Zen. In this enclosure, the ancient dog in the koan Zhaozhou's Mu has been suffocating. In English, this dog is so joyfully alive. So that's a different way to hold um, difference and foreignness, you know, and possibly one that is more um, more encouraging and enlivening. Um, and I think the last thing I want to say about possible difficulty is that sometimes we read a koan and think there's no place for me in here. This is, isn't about me. I can't, I can't locate myself in this story or this incident or this description. And, um, and I remember the first time when I was working in the miscellaneous and was finding a koan opaque, and the simple substitution of she for he 
opened everything up for me. I thought, oh, this is about me. (laughs) But it doesn't stop there, and this is the really important thing. As soon as I could feel I had a place in the koan, as soon as I could feel this was about me, I also instantly got that this was also about Jiaozhou's dog and the oak tree in the courtyard and the old Chinese guy and the, um, the donkey, that all of them were me too. And so what the koans do is they really mess with your sense of self. Basically what they're saying is, there isn't one, and it's vast. Mm-hmm. So, um, perhaps expressing something that you've, you've felt yourself, another um, Japanese 20th century koan teacher said, nothing will do. What will you do? This is the fundamental koan, the koan that is the common denominator of the thousands of koans. Nothing will do. What will you do? That's the whole method right there. <laughs> nothing you know, nothing, none of your usual ways of responding or, or of doing things matter. That's not the point. So now what do you do when nothing you know is going to work? This is the real difficulty that the koan offers. Once we've sort of owned the stuff that's actually the the karmic residue we're bringing to the koan, that difficulty, there is a difficulty left uh, underneath all that. And that is this, nothing will do, what will you do? And that's um, that's plenty of difficulty. We don't need to add anything to that. That's that's great, you know. How do we respond to this koan without resorting to any of our usual reactions or strategies? When we're faced with that situation, um, koans can can often raise reactions in us like resistance to being put on the spot or um, a desire to please, um, an anxiety to be right, um, a question about whether you'll actually get it or make a complete fool of yourself, a mistrust of the tradition, all of that kind of thing. Um, And we can find ourselves stuck with a koan for a long time, not able to, to come to a resolution or frustrated or even angry with it. Um, but what I want to suggest here that, is that all of these reactions are actually the difficulties that come not from the koan itself, again, but from the failure of our usual strategies. It's when what we usually do, what we're used to doing, what our habits of mind are, when those don't work, that we feel stuck and frustrated and angry. So... From the perspective of the koans, um, guess what? That's a great thing. <laughs> because all of that stuff is, is useless. All of that stuff is, fall, is having to be discarded as tools not fit for the task. And the question becomes, um, what is possible in the field cleared of all of our habitual ways of dealing with a question or a problem? So the Chinese um, use an interesting word as a, um, as a suggestion for what to do in the situation, and that word is exhaust. <laughs> exhaust it. Exhaust yourself. When we say exhaust in English, usually we mean something like, I've exhausted all my options. There's nothing else I can do. This, this is hopeless. And there's a sense of... of um, defeat of, of that it's time to walk away from something because there's nothing left to do. 
But in the in the Chinese, when they say exhaust, the word also means complete, and the the you know the penumbra of meaning around this this character is that um, please by all means exhaust everything you know what to do with this koan. Exhaust all of your usual ways of dealing. Exhaust all of your attempts to try to respond or understand it. Um, please go ahead because if you really do exhaust all that, if you complete all that, you end up on the other side of it. Standing in the place where none of that works. It's a completely open field. And then the Chinese emphasis in the word is on what becomes possible in that open field once you've exhausted everything you already know. What happens when you walk innocent to meet the koan? Walk free of everything you think you know. So that sense of exhaust is, um, well, fortunately I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> that's a really, you know, that's a really different attitude toward our habitual stuff. Well, fortunately, I've exhausted that. I don't have to do that anymore. Now what? Now what? Now what? Um, and that's that's the the um, the koans are a sort of endless movements into more and more open fields that ask, now what? Now what? What's next? What what's possible here? That's the great inquiry. What's possible here in this open field, in this situation? Um, And before you think that sounds like a pretty exhausting way to live, I will say that that once we have some practice with that exhaust, that process of exhaustion, we learn to kind of short-circuit the process and we can jump shift from here to there. We don't have to go through the whole process. I've been I've been noticing lately how often people will come into work in the room and say, "Okay, so I see this thing. It's risen up. There it is again. You know, so it's been there since I was seven years old. Do I really have to go through this? Again? Do I really have to understand this all the way to the bottom? Do I really have to explore this completely?" And at a certain point in your practice, the answer is no. You don't. You really don't. If you've done that process of exhaustion over and over and over again, at a certain point you can just jump from here to there without having to go through that long thing. And usually you'll, when you start asking that question, do I really have to do this again, that's when it might be time to think about um, whether it's time to leap rather than slog. <laughs> um, so if we, if we look at the famous koan of Zhaozhou's No, a pilgrim of the way asked Zhaozhou, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And Zhaozhou replied, no. If we look at it in the way that we're speaking of, um, in the beginning, most people have to exhaust the questions that come up around human beings and Buddha nature and other sentient beings, other non-human sentient beings and Buddha nature and all of that kind of stuff. And, so, and, and that's a good thing to do um, because you'll probably deepen and refine your understanding about non-human sentient beings and Buddha nature and all the rest of it. And that, um, that's a good thing. And at a certain point, we'll realize that it's still just an opinion. 
It might be a deepened and a refined opinion and an opinion we like better, but it's still just an opinion. So what the koan invites you to do is, having exhausted that worthwhile inquiry, jump shift over to Jojo's no. What the heck is that? What is that no? And if we can jump shift all the way with it, we can find ourselves on the other side of opinion, judgment, reaction, um, all our habitual ways of doing things, and find that that no, Jojo's no, is the sound that the universe makes, the sound that the vastness makes when we have cleared away all of the stuff that's between us and it. When we have exhausted rational inquiry, the universe booms this no, which doesn't mean no at all. Okay, so I will finish with a quote about the unfinished. Um, Hakuen, our direct ancestor in, in the koan line, Japan, 18th century, said that Zen is the unfinished koan. And when Hakuen said Zen, what he meant was life. <laughs> life is the unfinished koan. So he's talking again about what Suzuki spoke of, the Zen document the one that each of us brings along to this world at our birth and tries to decipher before we pass away. That endless process of trying to decipher, um, that's the unfinished koan. That is the nature of our lives, moving from question to question to question. We keep clearing the ground not so that we can stand somewhere with certainty and say, I got it, this is it, you know, I've, I made the cake, <laughs> and it's delicious, here I am. We keep clearing the ground so that we can discover a new question, and we can follow that new question to the next ground, and on and on and on. Um, Stephen Batchelor, a wonderful uh, English Buddhist philosopher said that he thought that that what is it, which is the uh, um, kind of basic Cohen inquiry, that what is it expresses reality much more adequately than such terms as impermanence, emptiness, Buddha nature, and so on. And this, he said this great thing: to the extent that we can express it in words, the mystery of life is best expressed as a question. And that's the koan understanding. The mystery of life is best expressed not as a concept like dharmakaya or Buddha nature or emptiness or anything like that, but as a question, an endless inquiry, an endless engagement with the world, um, living life as a question that we're both answering, that we're both asking and trying to understand as we go along. And um, the koans explicitly provide us a, a method, a way, an art to accompany us in this life of asking question after question after question because that brings us closest to the way things are. 
the nature of reality is an endlessly unfolding question, not a movement toward a resolution. So, um, I chose three koans, and Jen, could you hand those out? Which are, two, the first two are good questions in this vein. And the third is from um, what you read this morning. Here's the first beautiful question. Yin Men said, See how vast and wide the world is. Why do you put on your clothes at the sound of the bell? When the bell rings in the morning, why do you jump out of your bed and put your clothes on and hurry down to the meditation office? You just can't wait, right? (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, Suzuki Shinryu who was the founder of San Francisco Zen Center and Tassahara and Green Gulch and all of that, um, he, used to, he used to ask his students, what is your inmost request? That's a pretty beautiful question. And then finally, from um, Yongjia Shuanjue's Song of Realizing the Way that you read this afternoon, there was a, uh, there's a brief moment where he says, traveling alone, walking alone, the awakened ones follow the way of freedom, singing an old, clear song. And what makes that a koan is when you um, add a request to sing a line or two of that song. And there is, there cannot be one right answer to that. There can only, how many people in this room? There can only be twenty right answers to that koan, right? So just um, drop in for a moment with these three. Let yourself be a little bit quiet with them and see if there's anything you feel you want to respond to. Can you stand in the place where the first question, see how vast and wide the world is, why do you put your clothes on at the sound of the bell, is identical to the second question, what is your inmost request? Can you relax into that place? Can you feel that? And that it is only from that place that we can each sing a line or two of our version of that ancient clear song. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, 
the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.